The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to the Booklist Clear Spot on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Alex Fitch, and in tonight's show, I'm looking at the science fiction subgenre of alternate history, which is to say works that imagine the past and near future if historical events had taken a different path. Later in the show, I'm going to be talking to American novelist Max Brooks about his book World War Z, which depicts the present-day Earth after 20 years of a war with zombies, as well as its thematic prequels, The Zombie Survival Guide and Recorded Attacks. I'm also talking to Charles Stross about the reissue of his Parallel World series Merchant Princes, which depicts travel between various 21st centuries, where Europe is still feudal or has only just seen the Industrial Revolution, as well as the recent conclusion to his three-part novella with Cory Doctorow, Rapture of the Nerds. Before that, I'm talking to Ken MacLeod, and we're discussing his novella The Human Front and most recent novel Intrusion, which would look at the kinds of police states that might exist in this country if various political movements had access to more advanced technology. So if someone is to visit a bookshop at the moment, the two most recent books of yours in print are Intrusion, your most recent novel, but also The Human Front, a novella from about 10 years ago, which has just been reprinted by PM Press as one of their little um, plus books. It's quite nice in a way to be able to compare the two side by side. But I guess as an author, that's something you always have to deal with, the fact that older works keep on um, getting reprinted just as you're doing newer stuff so that readers are juxtaposing your old work with the new. Is that something that you look forward to or something actually that bothers you a bit because some of your older stuff you think, actually, <laughs> I wish uh, that that wasn't perhaps in the public eye as much? Oh, not at all. I'm, I'm very happy that The Human Front in particular got reprinted. It's had quite a... It's had a, a remarkable history of reprinting, actually, because it was originally written as very limited edition of mm. 500 signed copies for PS publishing which in in the UK which is a you know a science fiction and fantasy publisher a small essentially a, a small press though a very a very sophisticated and high quality one and Ian Banks wrote uh, an introduction to that very kindly uh, to that that edition and it then reappeared in a series which Golan's produced which were reviving a, a very old um style of science fiction publishing, which used to be called the Ace Doubles. Ace in the United States pioneered a technique called, I think it's called a Duplo, where you have a, a book where one half is one novella and the other half is the other novella, but they're upside down in relation to each other. Mm. Where, so you, each side of the book looks like the front. And The Human Front appeared alongside a novella by Eric Brown called A Writer's Life, you know, a, a very different and very, you know, a very nicely juxtaposed combination of stories, I thought. And it then appeared in a, an anthology, and then it appeared in a, in a Year's Best, one of these big, massive annual anthologies that come out mainly from the United States. I forget exactly which Year's Best it was, to my mm. embarrassment. It did, it did come out. So it's been knocking around for quite a while, and it's a very, it's a, in some ways, it's a very... It, it, it turns, let's say that in a way the story turns mm. on, a, on a frivolity. <laughs> but the actual story itself is, is kind of heavy, political, a certain amount of violence in it and so on. And uh, yeah, so that and a few, 
I was very happy that PM Press brought it out. Uh, got a lot of respect for these people and for Terry Bisson, the, the editor. I mean, it's interesting, like I said, the fact that you can compare the two books because of their recent, in one case, republication and in the other, first publication. In The Human Front, you very particularly come across as an angry young man, and these are the kind of Trotskyist ideals that you presumably did discuss in real life with your father as a youth. While in Intrusion, you're still clearly angry about Mm. a lot of issues in the modern world, and, you know, as the events of the past month or so and the recent announcement that they're going to advise mothers not to use any shower gel or anything like that. I guess one allows you to be fiery and the other one allows you to kind of weave in your concerns into a longer narrative. I guess it's good for you as an author to be able to apply those two different approaches to your work. Yes, it is. The I, I wouldn't say that, you know, the, I suppose, I may have changed a wee bit politically between the time of writing The Human Front, but of course the character in it is a inverted caricature of me at that age, as it were. Mm. Um, in fact, the way I the way I came up with for writing writing that particular story was to take certain circumstances of my own life and essentially invert them as part of the inverted or altered world mm. of the alternate history. Um, with uh, intrusion, yeah, I'm dealing with you know far more topical concerns, and yes, people do keep uh, reminding me or pointing out to me on Twitter and so on some some new outrageously silly thing, which is oh that really reminds very like your novel, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I I do I I think you know I I did by luck or judgment, hit on something that is a, a very live issue. Mm. The other thing that I really, that it came out of was um, a, a stint I did for about a year as one of two writers in residence of the Genomics Forum, which is a small uh, sociology institute, which has just wound up. It, it had a, a delimited, pre-arranged delimited lifespan, mm. Um, which is part of a, an economic and social research council project, which ran through several major research institutions on the social aspects of the new life sciences. And the Genomics Network did a lot of research, which the Genomics Forum really turned into turned a lot of it into public information of one kind or another, mm. whether it was briefings for uh, the media and for uh, legislators, etc., or interest groups, or the general public. And they had a, long, a, long, um, a long-term cultural edge as well, in that they sponsored discussion uh, themes and threads at the Edinburgh International Book Festival for quite a number of years, mm. and they had artists in residence and so on. And we had, we were, I and Pippa Goldschmidt were the two half-time writers and residents there. And it was a fascinating experience for me to meet sociologists really up close for the first time and to learn about the, the sociology of science and how sociologists view what's going on in science and how, how that whole approach to it. And I quite enjoyed, uh, well, a certain there's a certain amount of tongue-in-cheek satire of um, the sociology of science mm. and science science studies in intrusion 
that uh, it, it it has. I'm, I'm relieved to say it has has gone down very well with the the uh, sociologists themselves. Well, I guess satire and science fiction have gone hand in hand almost since the birth of the genre. And, you know, like we were discussing, the fact that since you wrote the novel, the world is frighteningly, you know, increasingly catching up with some of the um, the events that you've depicted. And so I guess it continues that whole strand of science fiction writers dealing with themes present in society that perhaps the counterculture are aware of but haven't quite made it into the mainstream yet. And so you can kind of express fears that you have as, as an author in a way that, you know, tackles developing themes in real life. Yes, I think that's that's exactly it. I think that having a little bit of um, counter-cultural awareness or, or minority awareness is a very useful characteristic for a science fiction writer in particular for that very reason. Um, in the early 90s, when I was working on my first novel, the kind of counter-cultural that I was fascinated by and a kind of peripheral part of was the early internet, in fact, Mm. and internet discussion groups and so on. And that had already begun to appear in in science fiction through, first of all, I think in Neuromancer by William Gibson, Mm. which came out in the mid-80s and was actually went, I think in in Gibson's case, it it was a, a work of pure genius because in a way there wasn't any he didn't have anything to go on beyond uh, a general sensitivity to the zeitgeist and a familiarity with computer games (laughs) (laughs) from that he kind of conjured essentially a a vision of the internet which funnily enough went on to inspire some of his actual Mm. architects (laughs) of the, the world wide web and so on Likewise, um, Neil Stevenson, he was much more uh, involved in, in the real computer work, but, and he, he wrote Snow Crash, which was a novel that was so close to the concerns of my first novel that I, I was read it with rather anxiously, actually. But as it turned out, my first novel, The Star Fraction, was quite conveniently far from the actual... You know, it wasn't a novel. We couldn't be mistaken for each other, as it were. Mm. So, yeah... And that that world of the the internet and internet enabled political activism has gone from um, an absolutely minority thing to um, something that everybody's aware of now. And I guess you know the the two genres that the human front and intrusion represents the alt history novel and the kind of near future novel share similar concerns that one is looking at history and how it might have been slightly worse or slightly better if things had gone differently. And then the the near future novel looks at the present day and just extrapolates it slightly. Yes, indeed. Um, the the idea. I mean, what my editor said to me when we were discussing what was then going to be my next novel was um, basically we, we want you we we would really like you to write the next Brave New World or 1984 or Fahrenheit <laughs> 451. Mm. And I was like, oh yeah, it's all you want. Yeah, why didn't you say so before? Uh, <clears throat> so. Yeah, the idea was to find some really hot, hot topical issue. And as, as it happened, I had just been taking part in a, a discussion on the scene Frankenstein's Daughters, question mark, about um, reproductive technology at Battle of Ideas, which is an, an annual um, uh, sort of festival of 
discussion in, in London, uh, to which I've been a few times, and um, I suddenly had the idea of, of the fix of this very reliable and simple and safe um, treatment for to correct any genetic errors in a, in a developing fetus. And uh, the question, of course, this, the science fictional question, the real science fictional question is not, gosh, wow, what if that was possible? But you imagine that that's possible, and then you think, well, who might object to it? Who would be harmed by it? Who would, who would find themselves in conflict with it? And that's where that that came from. And naturally, at first, me being me, my initial conception of the novel was of kind of international, conspiratorial, political techno-thriller. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that got um, pretty swiftly knocked back. And I managed to focus it, you know, just got to focus it down to the domestic and the, the local. Well, I actually saw uh, a young a young woman who happened to be working in the same building. I don't know her and didn't know her, but I, I saw her standing outside the door waiting to go in and I suddenly saw her and thought, yes, that's that's the mother. <laughs> that's what she's like. And once I had a clear picture of the mum in my mind, it all it all went from there. Would you describe yourself as an optimist or a pessimist? Because, I mean, looking at intrusion, it is a very plausible outcome to many of the concerns that we're dealing with in the present day. And, you know, you only have to read the news on a regular basis to think we're all going to hell in a handbasket. That's a very good question. I'm... Temperamentally, I'm uh, more of an optimist, actually. The reason why intrusion has a, a rather pessimistic ending or a hell in a handbasket ending, as you say, <laughs> is, is that it's, it is, in a way, it's part, of the, it's part of the specification for writing a dystopia. Mm. My, my slogan for a dystopia is an oppressive system takes on a brave individual and wins. Mm. So... I mean, that's that's the theme of Brave New World of 1984 and to a certain extent of Fahrenheit 451 as well and of just about any dystopia you can think of, um, including, I mean, classically in film, Brazil, which I think is one of the most brilliant, yeah. clever and grim and funny films ever made. So, yeah, that's that, that was it. So it, it had to, in some ways, it had to end with uh, something fairly dark, although there's a certain dark satisfaction, I think, in the ending. Mm. Um, but the, in a way, the, there is a hope in the, that's expressed ta- kind of obliquely at a, a certain point in the book where the, the rather sinister sociologist explains that because the world is run entirely consciously <laughs> and criticism is of no avail because the more criticism there is, the, the better the system adapts. Mm. that the possibility is still there of a, a quite rapid and massive change in consciousness that people just were aware of what's going on and what they're doing all the time, mm. that they, they could um, change everything fairly quickly. Mm. So there is, there is that in it, but it's yeah, fairly slim hope, I must admit. <laughs> a bit like the final section of The Human Front, where it suddenly becomes much more science fictional in its its themes and depictions, would you be tempted to do a sequel to Intrusion that explores the glimpses of the future world that the characters see, or indeed the parallel world that there's a suggestion that they might be able to escape to? No, not really, <laughs> no. In one sense, I mean, I would like to do a quite unrelated 
work set in set in a, a far future. Mm. But that's that's a different question. No, I, I think intrusion is much better as a, a self-contained work. Mm. It's not exactly crying out for a sequel. <laughs> uh, I think a sequel would ruin it. Actually, <laughs> well, I suppose that, you know the fact that it is a dystopia it means that the escape is locked off in a way. Yeah, yeah. Or, or there's really yes, there's 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 no way out. There's no as it was the character Hugh says, there's no away. You can't really get away from it. Um, and his his vision at the end and his, his kind of very quiet and sly revenge at the end is just a speculative possibility. Brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. Well, thank you. For more information about Ken McLeod's work, please go to kenmacleod.blogspot.com That's K-E-N-M-A-C L-E-O-D dot blogspot dot com. And if you'd like to hear my earlier interview with Ken McLeod, where I'm talking to him alongside comic book artist Edward Ross about their collaboration on the stem cell research comic book, Hope Beyond Hype, you can find the podcast of that on my blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com. Next, here's my interview with Max Brooks about World War Z and his various other books about zombies, plus his new comic book series The Extinction Game, which adds vampires to the mix. The book of World War Z is substantially different to the recent Brad Pitt movie, as it features a variety of narrators telling their stories of how they were affected by the war with zombies. To give you a flavour of the book, here's an extract read by Michelle Colos. This is what people brought with them. Hair dryers, game cubes, laptops by the dozen. I don't think they were stupid enough to think they could really use them. Maybe some did. I think most people were just afraid of losing them, that they'd come home after six months and find their homes looted. We actually thought we were packing sensibly. Warm clothes, cooking utensils, things from the medicine cabinet, and all the canned food we could carry. It looked like enough food for a couple of years. We finished half of it on the way up. That didn't bother me. It was like an adventure, the trek north. All those stories you hear about the clogged roads and violence, that wasn't us. We were in the first wave. The only people ahead of us were the Canadians, and most of them were already long gone. There was still a lot of traffic on the road, more cars than I'd ever seen, but it all moved pretty quickly and only really snarled in places like roadside towns or parks. Parks, designated campgrounds, any place where people thought they'd gone far enough. Dad used to look down on those people, calling them short-sighted and irrational. He said that we were still way too close to population centers, and the only way to really make it was to head as far north as we could. Mom would always argue that it wasn't their fault, that most of them had simply run out of gas. And whose fault is that, Dad would say. We had a lot of spare gas cans on the roof of the minivan. Dad had been stocking up since the first days of the panic. We passed a lot of traffic snarls around roadside gas stations, most of which already had these giant signs outside that said, no more gas. Dad drove by them really fast. He drove fast by a lot of things. I'm talking to Max Brooks. We're at Forbidden Planet in London at a signing for the movie tie-in edition of World War Z. World War Z is its an incredible novel. It's like a mixture of travelogue, of oral testimony, and of course the, the zombie genre. Your first book, uh, The Zombie Survival Guide, is quite tongue-in-cheek. You know, it's, it's not an entirely... Not me, well, okay, but, 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 but some people, you know, see it as a comedic book, but certainly yeah, yeah. 
World War Z is not. I mean, were you aiming for a more serious follow-up? No, no, I didn't. Uh, the, my first book, Zombie Survival Guide, was in my mind a mm. serious book on what you would do if there was a zombie plague. Mm. Uh, I never intended anybody to think it was funny, and if there is a joke, the joke is on me. Okay. Because uh, when I sat down to write it, I really thought, well, what would I do? Mm. Yeah. Maybe it's almost the absurdity of the situation because zombies were still, at least in the UK, a fairly nascent genre at the time. And the idea of someone writing a book about something like, oh, that would never happen. Although now we live in a world where people are writing zombie survival guides. Right. I think maybe maybe if I was a better businessman, I should have waited, uh, you know, 10 years or something like that to do it. But the truth is, the reason I did do it was because Mm. I wanted to read it Mm. and nobody was writing it and it was the same thing in America there was no zombie stuff out there there certainly was no zombie books Mm. but I was hungry for a book on telling me how to survive my childhood fear Mm. so I thought well I'll write it for myself and I'll stick it in a drawer I mean I was going to publish it Mm. Uh, shows you what I know you say your childhood fear was that because of an early encounter with Night of the Living Dead or similar yes it was an early encounter with an Italian cannibal zombie movie nice it was one of those really crazy, gory ones that, mm. you know, a 13-year-old boy should never see. Mm. Uh, certainly not a 13-year-old boy with a vivid imagination. So I think that sort of set the path. And then I saw Night of the Living Dead a few years later, and that mm. movie, ironically, gave me hope. Whereas <laughs> okay. it scared most people, I thought, oh, well, you can survive. You just need to make the right mm. choices. So then I spent years thinking, what would those right choices be? You were telling me before we started recording that you work for the BBC um, on shoots in Uganda. Had you done an awful lot of uh, foreign travel before you started working on World War Z so that you could actually feed that into the writing of the novel? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I traveled, obviously, as a kid with my parents, but I also I, I did a semester abroad in college in the Caribbean, in the, in the University okay. of the Virgin Islands. And when I was in graduate school, I lived in Prague. I went to the film academy there for six months. And in between, I did an unpaid internship here with the BBC doing Mm. documentaries in places like the north of Scotland and in East Africa. Mm. Uh, So I got a chance to travel uh, a lot. And and that maybe that awoke the international flair in me for the book. But I also did it because, you know, I think Americans, for all our amazingly awesome strengths, and we have a lot, uh, we are sadly isolationist. Mm. Uh, which would be fine if we were Denmark or Iceland, but we're not. <laughs> we're a world power. Yeah. So I wanted this book to be an international book because I really do believe that there are no more local problems anymore. I think mm. the planet is just too small uh, and it's too easy to get around, trade and travel, and there's very few problems that happen in one part of the world that doesn't affect the other part. Mm. In terms of the feeling of the book, it's reminiscent of a lot of World War II narratives in yeah, terms exactly of, you know, survivor's guilt and living in a world that is literally inconceivable before yeah. the world, the war started. A really good way of saying that, by the way. Was that a topic that you studied when you were doing your history major, or was it something you already had an interest in? I think I was always a history nerd, hmm. but I think you phrased it really well that, you know, the notion of living in a world that has been so dramatically changed mm. is, is not something I invented. I mean, mm. it, it sounds fantastic in World War Z, but the truth is the world of 1939 is very different than the world of 1945. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to create that. I wanted to create that notion of, of looking back and retrospective and, and getting some sort of distance from it. And the truth is I based it on the good war. Mm. I, I based the telling of the story on... Studs Terkel's The Good War, an oral history of the Second World War. 
mm. and that was that was sort of a seminal work for me. Mm. And also, um, All Quiet on the Western Front gets mentioned by one of the characters, and I was wondering if that was an influence as well. Yeah, uh, that was an influence. Uh, another one was uh, General Sir John Hackett's uh, The Third World War, a British general who wrote, he wrote about this Third World War as if it had happened, and he wrote about mm. it as it was as if it were a dry military textbook. I mean, mm. he literally wrote about it in that very sort of dry technical writing uh, that only sort of middle-aged war buffs would read. And I mm. thought, wow, what, what courage to not try to sex it up. Mm. And when I read it, I thought, oh my God, if I didn't know anything about history, I would think World War III really happened. Yeah. So that was another influence. And then obviously, George Romero. Mm. So before writing uh, The Survival Guide, you had been a sketch writer for uh, Saturday Night Live? Yeah, yeah, I was. That was a, a, very, a very different experience. <laughs> but I guess as a sketch writer, did that perhaps influence the more compartmentalized idea of both books, that it's kind of like small digestible sections that add up to a greater whole? You know what it influenced? It, it, it influenced me in a sense that it proved to me that I am not a collaborative writer. It sort of really drove the point home that I, I'm not at home when I'm sitting in a writer's room kibitzing with other guys mm. and girls and you know I'm much more myself when I'm by myself in a little room with my imagination and that's it mm. and I guess people would expect you to have continued doing broad comedy after that and I guess after your dad's legacy why horror you know uh, I think a, a bigger question would be why not because yeah. that's where my heart always went uh, <laughs> horror science fiction uh, mm. you know that that's who I am that that's where my passion lies mm. and and my whole life has sort of been spent trying to disprove other people's uh, assumptions mm. and that's why zombie survival guide came out in, in the humor section because everyone mm. thought oh he's Mel Brooks's son therefore he must be funny he wrote for Saturday Night Live mm. oh and he won a little gold statue for that so therefore I mean why wouldn't this book not be funny mm. and I thought no I'm not as cool as you think I am I'm not some <laughs> witty social essayist I'm, I'm really just a dork who's afraid of zombies <laughs> But I guess the one thing that horror as a genre and sci-fi as a genre have in common with comedy is that they take the everyday and then twist it slightly to produce something different that makes us look back at the everyday with a different eye. Well, you know, I think the key difference is that comedy uh, makes fun of the real world mm. and science fiction specifically reinvents the world. And I think that's why I always say you date comedy, you marry science fiction. <laughs> you know, okay. that's why there's no Seinfeld conventions. That's why there's no, you know, MASH conventions. I mean, my mm. favorite English TV show was The Young Ones mm. growing up. You know, I don't see too many people going to conventions dressed like, you know, Rick or Vivian. <laughs> uh, you see comedy, you love it, you're into it, and then you move on. Where science mm. fiction, it gives you an ability to live in, in a world all by itself. Mm. You know, I mean, you, you never have to leave that world. And that's why I think science fiction fans are so rabid about the world mm. that they feel emotional ownership with. And I think that's why, you know, when someone comes along and changes it, people go ballistic. Mm. And they say, I mean, I'm sorry, but in my mind, Tom Baker is Doctor Who. <laughs> I don't know who all those other guys are that came after him. I don't know who came before him. When I was a kid, I turned on the TV, Tom Baker, Doctor Who. And, and that's it. <laughs> cool.
you haven't been involved with the World War Z movie per se, but in terms of visualising the events from your books, you did help produce a graphic novel, um, Recorded Attacks, that span out of your original book. When it came to doing uh, Recorded Attacks, how long a process did that take, thinking these are the episodes that I want to see visualised? That was, that was a huge process for me, and... and more importantly, I think the, the harder work was doing the research mm. because it's one thing to write about uh, feudal Japan. Mm. It's another thing to really figure out what do the houses look like, how do the people dress. Uh, you know, try when it's visual, when it's a comic book, it's all out there. There's nothing left to the mm. imagination. There's no place to hide. And mm. so I had to do reams of research to figure out how everything looked mm. at the time, uh, especially when I had. Uh, an artist like Ibrahim Roberson who was so detailed that mm. there really was no place to hide. He's not stylized. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was a tremendous amount of homework. Mm. And I guess while World War Z is a travelogue going all around the globe, uh, Recorded Attacks is like a temporal travelogue as well. Exactly. <laughs> Finding periods in history that interested you that would perhaps produce an interesting juxtaposition to uh, zombies. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good way of saying it because, see, with World War Z, I wanted to see how different countries would react to mm. a zombie plague. With recorded attacks, I wanted to see how different times would react, mm. different cultures throughout history. Mm. And I thought that was really important. It's just as important for me to see the difference between, say, how the Romans would react mm. as uh, the Caribbean colonial slave culture would react. Mm. And also, we talked about the relevance to events in the Second World War, but also, um, I guess, World War Z paints a picture of America more like the New Deal as well. It's more, it almost leads, like you said, to a hopeful resolution yeah. once you've survived something like this. No, I mean, we're talking about strengths and weaknesses. You know, an American weakness is isolationism, but mm. an American strength is hope. Mm. And, and I know a lot, of, a, a lot of places around the world look at us as sort of being childish and silly and naive, but the truth is that's one thing I love about America is mm. uh, we never give up hope. We never surrender to cynicism. Uh, so that was nice after I wrote World War Z, which was in the heart of the Bush administration, to have <laughs> our culture suddenly become, yes, we can. Yeah. Uh, which I thought, yeah, that, that's, that resonates with us. Mm. Because, I'm sorry, you go to a lot of countries and it's, no, you can't. No. <laughs> and your next uh, zombie-related project is a comic book called yes. The Extinction Parade. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that is a zombie plague, but it's told through the eyes of vampires. <laughs> okay. uh, because I wanted to explore the notion of a privileged super race. Because mm. I, I very much believe that uh, human accomplishments are all based on human weaknesses. Mm. The fact that we have risen to the top of the food chain is because we started in the middle, if not the bottom. Mm. We're a very weak species, and therefore everything we've had to do, the organizing, the adapting, the educating, the innovating, that all came from the fact that we didn't have claws or fangs or super speed. Mm. So I thought, well... What if there was a super race with all these gifts that had these superpowers, so to speak, you know, the speed, the agility, mm. the immortality, very important, and the anonymity? Mm. Uh, they would be modern-day aristocrats. So therefore, they wouldn't have ever had to struggle for anything, and they wouldn't have a history of struggle. Mm. Uh, how would they react to an apocalyptic threat that, even though it didn't directly threaten them, mm. would be eating their food source out from under them? So I really wanted to sort of dive into that and see sort of how Aristos would deal mm. with a life-threatening catastrophe. 
And unlike Recorded Attacks, which was published straight off in graphic novel format, this is coming out as a traditional serialized American comic book. How have you found that experience working within that format? That's a learning experience for me. The the Mm. notion of sort of tying everything up in a neat package. it's also nerve-wracking because at least when Recorded Attacks came out, it was only one nervous breakdown before it hit the shelves. <laughs> now i got to do that 12 times. It's a, it's a, a limited series of 12 issues. Mm. So, oh, great. So every month I get to have a new panic attack when the new one comes out. Mm. And I guess having to come up with a mini cliffhanger at the end of each issue as well. Kind of, yeah. It's, um, I mean, what I did was, was outline every single issue before I even started writing the scripts. I wanted mm. to know exactly where I was going each time. Uh, but... I'm always challenging myself, and I'm never satisfied, and, and I never want to uh, take it easy. So, so I'm always sort of pushing and, and freaking out. Mm. Cool. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Oh, thank you. For more information about Max Brooks' work, please go to his website, maxbrooks.com. For the second half of today's show, I'm talking to author Charles Stross. The latest two books of yours that we can buy in shops are actually reissue stroke remixes of previous work. The first chunky collection of your Merchant Prince's uh, novels collects the first two books and I believe has some additional reworking of the material. And also we now have The Rapture of the Nerds as a collected novel, which originally was two separate novellas that you've added along a third part to. Um, yeah, I should add that these are two entirely separate projects. Mm. The Rapture of the Nerds is a collaboration with Cory Doctorow that we worked on, I think, between about 2002 and 2011, in effect. It took a very long time, and it came out in three chunks. Mm. The Merchant Princes is entirely my own work. It's a series of novels that were written and published originally in the United States. Um, There's a history to this. My literary agent is based in New York. I am, in fact, sold primarily in America, even though I'm a British author. Mm. And... Around 2002, I was looking for a new project to work on, and The Merchant Princes were the next thing I wrote. However, for business-related reasons too complex and annoying to go into, they didn't sell in the UK at the same time as the initial publication in the United States. They were sort of published half-heartedly a few years ago, the first couple of them, and then sank without trace. So when in 2011, my my editor at Orbit... Uh, Bella Pagan moved shop to Macmillan with a remit to reboot the Toy UK line. Mm. Um, It seemed like a good idea to talk to her, and she was most surprised to discover she had the rights to effectively six unpublished Charlie Stross novels. (laughs) And this didn't seem right to her, and it doesn't seem right to me. Now, I'd originally intended these books to be big, fat, brassy, alternate history techno-thriller-ish novels, Mm. but again, for commercial reasons too complex to go into but involving marketing, they came out as sort of salami-sliced, relatively thin novels and all marketed as fantasy. So we discussed the possibility of reassembling them, doing effectively a director's cut, and publishing them as originally intended as fat, thrillerish novels. And I spent a good chunk of last year effectively redrafting them. Um, Mm. There are an enormous number of changes, uh, most relatively small. Unlike most director's cuts, this one actually came out about 5% shorter than the original. Um, when you're writing sl- uh, slim novels, you, need, you tend to need more introductory material explaining what has gone before earlier in the series, and a lot of that could be done away with. So I'm really happy with the way these ones are coming out. Um, it's much closer to my original conception for how the series should look, 
And it's also a solid platform for the next work I'm doing long term, which won't be published until 2015 at the earliest, which is three more books in this series. Hmm. I mean, I've just read the the first uh, fat edition, as you as you call them, and it doesn't feel like there's a cliffhanger anywhere in particular in the middle. I believe that the first two books were always intended to be one volume anyway. Yes, I originally handed them in as a single book. Then sort of a month before the production deadline, I got an email from America saying, Charlie, we're going to publish these as two 300-page books. Can you chop them in half? <laughs> Um, at which point I had to really hastily insert a cliffhanger, and I was sort of grinding my teeth down to stumps. Um, it was a blessed relief to actually be able to remove the artificial cliffhanger and reassemble them as one book. I did get a, a lot of grief from readers early on saying, why does this novel just stop? <laughs> so um, hopefully this one works better. Mm. Where did the initial idea for the novels come from? Um, I was kicking around ideas... In 2002, I had just been signed up with my literary agent, and we had sold two science fiction novels to my SF publisher. And all was looking well, but I was uh, unemployed at the time other than writing and doing freelance journalism. So when my agent said, why don't you write me a big fat fantasy or alternate history series I can sell and make us both lots of money, this seemed like a really good use of my time. <laughs> now, um, the reason it had to be sounds, uh, it had to be fantasy or alternate history was because my SF publisher had the right of first refusal on my next SF novel. Mm. And as my agent pointed out, they wouldn't be interested in seeing that for a couple of years because they had two in the pipeline. They mm. had to publish those first. So we sat down and I kicked some ideas around. And it seemed to me that if you're going to go for something fairly artificial, um, if, you really, if you're really looking for a good plot, why not steal? Steal from the best, being perfectly cynical about this. <laughs> But, you know, you don't steal from somebody who's still alive and writing, steal from somebody who's dead. So I began looking around and realized, hang on, I really like Rogers Alasny's Nine Princes in Amber. And there's this H. Bean Piper guy who did paratime uh, science fiction as well. I wonder what happens if you take their ideas, strip them back to bedrock, and have another really good look at them. Mm. And um, from Zelazny, we have the idea of these feuding quasi-medieval families of nobles who can travel to alternate timelines... From Piper, we have a much more hard-headed approach to trading between timelines. And I suddenly thought, what if there are people who can travel to our world from another timeline, and it's a much more primitive one than ours? Mm. They can maybe only carry what they're holding in their own hands or on their back. You know, these are not the demigods of Nine Princes in Amber. What are the consequences going to look like? And that's basically where I began digging from, um, you know, it's not a straight copy. It's more a case of look at what was really successful in this field before and see if I can come up with a few new wrinkles based on it. And before I'd gone very far, it sort of took on a life of its own. And I suddenly realized I was sort of writing a uh, mafia story, if you like, with thriller overtones and scarier and scarier side effects the further into it I began to explore. Mm. which should become fairly obvious in the second and third volumes. The, the, the two parallel worlds that we see in the first um, omnibus, one is a sort of medieval feudal society and one is a more sort of steampunky earlier 20th century society. Did you come up with those as being the subjects of the parallel worlds first and then think, what point in time do I need to go back to to find the divergence which created these societies? I came up with the worlds first, but had a fairly good idea for where the divergence was before I actually began writing them. 
Um, I should add the somewhat steampunky one is developing. As William Gibson said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. <laughs> um, our heroine arrives in this steampunky world and sees zeppelins and streetcars and steam locomotives. Um, but you'd have seen pretty much most of those things if you'd materialized in the United States in 1942. What you wouldn't have seen would have been the Manhattan Project, the nascent work on computers at Bletchley Park, um, or the jet engines, mm. or the ballistic missiles of V2s. Um, so there is this stuff tucked out of sight, and there's also some interesting political consequences going on. One of the things that got me hooked once I began getting into this material was the idea of development, economic development and political development. What are the determinants of development? Why do some countries make a great leap forward into modernity and leaving others behind? Consider, for example, North and South Korea. In 1953, they were pretty much equal. They'd both been badly damaged, indeed flattened, by a foreign occupation followed by a bitter war. They were both run as military dictatorships. Um, you couldn't look at North Korea and at South Korea and predict that by 2010, one of them would be one of the richest countries in the developed world, and the other would be this bizarre hermit kingdom whose neighbors were starving. Mm. What causes this divergence to happen? And that became a chunk of the uh, body of these stories. Um, our clan of world walkers who visit our world, they live in a pretty much medieval tech-level civilization on the eastern coast of North America in a timeline where the Dark Ages were much darker than in our history. They've clawed their way up quite a way, but they're still relatively backwards. And despite being immensely rich in their own lands and having access to ours, they can't quite figure out how to begin development, how to bootstrap their way out of what economists refer to as a development trap. Mm. Thinking of technological development, which is something that you discuss a lot in your books, not only in your fiction, but your um, non-fiction when you give lectures, by coming up with these two parallel worlds, these two additional parallel worlds, it means that the narrator can make parallels between how she observes the world she's come from and the world she's visiting, which I guess makes it easier for the audience to get a handle on the narrative. Yes. Also, I decided I needed to keep the focus fairly tight. In, in one way of looking at it, the worlds themselves are protagonists within this longer mm. story. Um, I decided to keep the focus fairly tight at first on just three worlds, the relatively feudal one, the somewhat steampunky but developing one, mm. and a rather scary version of our own world where there is a point of departure in 2001. By the end of the series, things are very, very visibly different. Okay. Um, indeed, at risk of spoilers, we hear a phrase uttered, President Rumsfeld's America. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, well, I've, I've only um, read the first omnibus so far. But... Yeah. It's diverging. It's going to diverge rapidly from the second omnibus onwards. Oh, okay. Um, but I thought it's easier to highlight the contrast if you actually limit limit the field to only a few worlds. By the end of the third omnibus, they've discovered another half dozen or so. Mm. Um, the implications of this are only going to become clear in the next book, which, as I say, I'm working on now. Mm. Well, I mean, you kind of imply the possibility of multiple parallels in the first book when the protagonist realizes that. The, the way that she travels through the world and other uh, world walkers do is by staring at uh, a kind of a logo and an insignia, and she notices only a slight difference, obviously a cock-up, which in previous times caused people to visit the other world. Therefore, if you just make that slight change elsewhere in the logo, it would lead you to different places again. Yes, 
that's deliberately telegraphed fairly early on. Mm. Um, I'm making use of that later on in the series. Cool. Thinking of the republishing of the books now, it actually seems quite prescient in terms of trends in fiction that we've had the incredibly popular Millennium Trilogy, which has a crusading journalist as its lead character. There is uh, Robert Harris's novel The Ghost, which was um, filmed with Ewan McGregor a few years ago. And it seems the idea, I mean, maybe not at this moment in Britain, but it does seem at this moment in time that the idea of the crusading journalist as the hero is something that's becoming popular again. They're a very useful protagonist. Certainly, if you want somebody with individual agency who can go and unearth secrets, you've got a fairly limited scope for who can do it. Um, People whose day jobs involve unearthing secrets, well, we're basically down to police officers, spies, and journalists. Mm. That's about the limit of it. So for certain types of story, it's a very useful protagonist to have. I mean, their job is to get the story, to go out and explore things and find out new stuff. Um, This is really, really useful if what you're trying to do is to uh, show a window, a a widening window on an alien world. Mm. Like I said, the other one of your projects, which has just been reissued in a a sense, is The Rapture of the Nerds, which you co-wrote with Cory Doctorow. And the first half, uh, the first two novellas, were published 10 years ago, and now you've written a third one together to complete the story. It returns to themes that you first wrote about at the beginning of your career as a fiction writer. And I wonder if it's been difficult to get back into that sort of state of mind after a decade, almost in a way having to ignore the developments of uh, science and technology over the last decade so that the third part of the novel fits in with the world that you created for the first two. Um, Actually, I'm going to say no to that. Okay. Firstly... Um, Cory and I will have worked together on this. It's not a product of one person, but of two mm. minds. And it's much easier to get into the spirit of something when you've got somebody else to work with and discuss it with. Mm. Secondly, there wasn't quite as much time separating the third part from the first two as you suggest. The second novella was written in 2005-2006. There's only about a five-year gap. Okay. Um, so... What we did have was a lot of time to digest the implications of the earlier part, and we'd really intended to write a three-act comedy from the start, (laughs) more or less. Or rather, we started out writing a short story. By the time it had grown to become a novella, we realized that it should be the first part of the three-act comedy. So when we actually got the green light to go ahead and write the third part, we sorted out fairly early on what we wanted to do with it. And we basically wanted to take a really sceptical look at the singularitarian transhumanist Mm. thing, which has been big news for 10, 20 years now, but isn't exactly the cutting edge of science fiction anymore. At least I hope it isn't. (laughs) If so, then the cutting edge is very, very blunt indeed. (laughs) When you did first start writing the project with Corey, what made you want to look at the transhumanist idea in the first place? It sort of arrived emergently. Uh, what actually happened was Corey and I were kick it, talking an email and uh, one of us said, hey, you want to collaborate on a short story? Sure, why not? Um, so I went dumpster diving in my folder of starts of stories that I can't do anything with and came over a 1,000-word-long stump about this guy who's basically waking up with a hangover in a very strange bathroom after a very, very weird party. And I chucked this at Corey, and he wrote another thousand words, and I wrote another thousand words, and gradually this really strange story began to emerge. Mm. Um, Almost from this strange third-party author who's ghostly channeling or something. (laughs) 
And I suppose that must be quite a fun way of, of collaborating because actually if you know what you want to do from the start, you perhaps react against each other a bit too much. But if it is almost like you're making it up as you go along and just reacting off the previous chapter, it's like a journey of discovery while you're writing it. Yeah, also like a game of table tennis. Mm. You know, catch that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great fun to start with. And by the time it was more of a trudge because we realised we were embarking on a novel, we had enough of it behind us to have a solid platform to build on. Mm. I guess it's quite an unusual novel for people who read Corey's other work, because although his short stories can be very science fictional, his novels are generally set in the present day, or at least you know one minute in the future, and think more about present society than the far future. Yes, however, for context, we began writing it in I think two thousand and two or two thousand and three. Mm. This was well, this was shortly after his novel Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom came out. Mm. And if you look at Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, that's rather further into the future and rather more transhumanist than his more recent works. Mm. So it's not out of line with what he does. It's just that his other novels are somewhat are focused in a somewhat different direction. Mm. Going back to the story, though, had your opinions changed about sort of a transhumanist singularity over the period of writing the novel? Were you either of you ever optimistic about the idea or... Are you both terribly pessimistic about it? I'd like to say I'm agnostic about okay. <laughs> it. Uh, what I do see and what worries me is that for an idea which is theoretically cold-eyed and rationalist, there's an awful lot of theological overtones to it and echoes mm. of cosmology dreamed up by theologians all the way back to the Middle Ages. So I think it's important to approach it with scepticism in mind, not denial, but awareness that we may be falling into a cognitive trap, a very attractive trap, which we've been primed for by the mythology of the society we've grown up in. Mm. To think of it as sort of a counterweight to my earlier novel, Accelerando. Okay, because that book was also about the singularity, but came at it from a very different point of view. Exactly. Is it a subject that you think is achievable within 100 years, 200 years, or actually it is just a nice science fiction trope that can lead to playful um, story ideas? Actually, I've got no idea. <laughs> um, whenever I look at a particular area of it, from the idea of technical achievability, it gets much more daunting and much more complex. Mm. On the other hand, whenever I raise my sight and look at the broad picture, um, our ability to deal with daunting and complex problems is getting stronger. Mm. So um, I, I'm not consistent in my attitude to it. I have uh, optimistic days and pessimistic days. What I do believe, though, is if we ever did get there, it would look nothing like what we might expect. Mm. There would be second-order consequences of vastly transhuman intelligence that we simply cannot anticipate any more than the people who developed the really cheap camera chips that are in all, all our mobile phones could anticipate happy slapping. <laughs> Indeed. Actually, I was going to bring up, that was the most recent lecture of yours that I read online, was um, you were talking about Moore's Law and how one consequence of the increasing miniaturization of storage and technology hasn't been amazing computers that can you know think of solutions to cancer it's actually been the proliferation of youtube videos which i guess no one thought of you know 20 years ago no um we are actually living through what could loosely be called the photographic singularity mm. Um, I have seen estimates that 10% of all photographs ever taken by human beings since the invention of photography were taken last year. Wow. And about 25 to 30% of them are on Facebook. Now, 
this is an interesting side effect of the massive explosion and proliferation of our data gathering and storage capability. Um, we are heading for what I think we can loosely call an era of total history, not necessarily in the sense the term has been applied by historians before, but in the sense of almost everything will be monitored and recorded. Uh, it may not be retained indefinitely, but it will in principle be possible to do statistical analysis of everyday life on a global scale in mm. the future because we will retain sufficient records to, for example, track pedestrian movements on high streets and see and even identify the individuals and trace where they're going and where they're coming from. Um, put it all together. And once you get past the privacy issues, because we're speculating on doing this to archival material that's hundreds of years old, the practice of history and our relationship with it is going to change completely. Mm. Also, our relationship to geography. Think in terms of being able to do a web search for the street you're standing on and see it as it existed a month ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, a century ago, overlaid. Well, it's funny, as you talk about yeah. that, it makes me think of Borges' short story about the emperor who wanted to create a map of his kingdom that was the same size as the kingdom itself. And you have yes, to think, well, actually, what's the we point? We actually have <laughs> that capability coming now, mm. which... Uh, is quite remarkable. Um, as I worked out some years ago, we may be the last generation who remember what it is like to be able to be lost. Mm. Because again, the proliferation of online mapping and uh, Google Street View and similar, and the availability of smartphones means that the next generation aren't going to remember what it's like not to know where you are. Mm. Well, it was interesting. I mean, I was reading an article today about, I don't know if it's a British Medical Council or, or some other group, but they were thinking in the near future, we'll need to reclassify various mental disorders because the way that the environment changes around us, that there's no longer conditions for certain mental problems to exist anymore. While, of course, the changing technology, like the, the lack of privacy, the constant photography of everything, is going to create new scenarios where humans haven't had to deal with that problem before. One of the scariest things I ran across on the internet about 10 years ago was a website a social forum, basically a chat room, where the paranoid schizophrenics were comparing notes on the great global conspiracy that was monitoring them. Right. And they were, well, on the one hand, support groups are good, yes. Mm. On the other hand, when they are reinforcing each other's delusional system, this is not necessarily good. Mm. Indeed. Again, it's become very, very hard if you're walking down a street to tell the difference between somebody with a severe mental illness and somebody who's just talking to a friend on a hands-free headset. Yes. So you've got the next of the Merchant Princes series uh, due in a year or so, but in between you've got a completely different novel due out later this summer? Yes, a publication of, for the first time, unlike the previous novels, which are to some extent reissues in the UK for the first time. The new novel is titled Neptune's Brood, and it is simultaneously a space opera set in the same universe as my earlier novel, Saturn's Children, and um, a deeply twisted metaphor about the 2008 banking crisis. Okay. Publishers Weekly described it as possibly the first far-future space opera about macroeconomics. <laughs> cool. Well, I mean, I, you know, I guess that's one thing that great science fiction has always done well, is used it as a lens to look at recent or current events that perhaps will bring a new perspective on the recent history that people who just write non-speculative fiction can't get at. Absolutely. Um, I also have had a permanent irritant that I've been nagging at for years, which is how do you fund space colonization? Mm. 
Um, it's all very well to say we must colonize Mars, but where is the money going to come from? Or rather, where are the investment vehicles going to come from? Because mere money isn't going to cut it when we're talking about projects lasting thousands of years, mm. um, longer than the duration of a human lifetime. How do we actually build a financial system that can cover interplanetary, much less interstellar, colonization at slow and light speeds? So I came up with this rather strange, slow financial system um, designed to support such long-term projects. Then I began thinking about the consequences, including what sort of frauds would spring up mm. in interstellar colonization. So we have a novel about a mild-mannered, middle-aged histor historian of accountancy practices wandering from star system to star system looking for her pen pal, whose last letter is several years overdue, who appears to have disappeared. And our historian is being stalked by assassins because they think she's on the trail of where the money was laundered from the biggest fraud in human history, one so vast that it was necessary to colonize a couple of hundred solar systems just to launder the proceeds. <laughs> cool. And this is space opera on the scale of Neptune's brood. Excellent. Well, I look forward, uh, very much forward to, to reading it. And thank you for having time to, to spend with us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's been Good. a pleasure. Cool. Good to talk to you. For more information about Charles Stross's work, please go to www.antipope.org stroke charlie. And if you're listening to this interview in its original broadcast or to the podcast before September the 5th, 2013, Charlie's publisher Orbit has cut the price of the ebook edition of his novel The Atrocity Archives to £1.99 in the UK, and you can find links to various ebook formats on his blog antipope.org stroke charlie also on thursday the 5th of september i'm comparing a night at the brighton digital festival in which a dozen local cartoonists will be talking about their work in six minute slots including first fictions graphic novel winner gareth brooks daryl cunningham the author of science tales the new edition of which has an extra chapter looking at fracking hannah eaton the author of naming monsters Hannah Berry, the author of Adam Time, Joe DC, the author of The Accidental Tourist, and many more. Quick Strips is taking place at the latest bar, Manchester Street, Brighton, from 6.30pm on the 5th of September. If you'd like to know even more about graphic novels and can afford the £119 fee, there's an all-day event about how to write for the format as the latest Guardian Masterclass taking place at their venue near King's Cross, London. Guests include former Polish poster designer turned graphic novelist Andrzej Klamowski, Audrey Neffenegger, author of The Time Traveller's Wife, who has also written the serialised graphic novel The Night Bookmobile in The Guardian, Pat Mills, co-creator of Judge Dredd and 2000 AD, and Carrie Franzman, whose strips have been featured in The Times, The Telegraph and The New Statesman, and whose graphic novel The House That Groaned, is published by Random House. You can find more information about that at www.theguardian.com stroke guardian dash masterclasses. And the event starts at 9.30am on Saturday the 7th of September. This is also the last week of the Ralph Steadman exhibition at the Cartoon Museum in London on 35 Little Russell Street. And you can find more information about that exhibition at cartoonmuseum.org.
Today's Clear Spot was recorded, introduced and edited by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and as well as my regular show on comics, Panel Borders, which is broadcast Mondays at 4.30 and Thursdays at 11am, I'll be presenting another Clear Spot about books in November, looking at the various incarnations of Doctor Who in print. Until then, thanks for listening. This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.